Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Chit Heads. My very special guest today is Sharon Salzberg. Sharon Salzberg is a meditation teacher inspired by the Buddhist tradition and the author of nine books, including Loving Kindness, the wildly popular New York Times bestseller Real Happiness, Real Happiness at Work, and Love Your Enemies, How to Break the Anger Habit and Be a Whole Lot Happier. In 1976, she established, together with Joseph Goldstein and Jack Kornfield, the Insight Meditation Society in Barr, Massachusetts, which now ranks as one of the most prominent and active meditation centers in the Western world. Sharon and Joseph Goldstein expanded their vision in 1989 by co-founding the Bar Center for Buddhist Studies, and in 1998, they initiated the Forest Refuge, a long-term retreat center secluded in a wooded area on Insight Meditation Society property. Today, she leads and teaches a variety of offerings around the globe. She has participated in countless events, including several alongside His Holiness the Dalai Lama. She contributes and has contributed to several notable publications, such as The Oprah Magazine, The Huffington Post, and is currently a weekly columnist for On Being. She has appeared in Time Magazine, Yoga Journal, MSNBC.com, Tricycle, Real Simple, Body and Soul, Mirabella, Good Housekeeping, Self, Buddha Dharma, More, and Shambhala Sun, as well as on a variety of radio programs. Sharon currently resides in Barr, Massachusetts, and New York City. So with that, hello, Sharon. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, well, thank you. It's really such a pleasure to have you. You know, I, I read your book, Real Happiness, you know, several years ago, and I remember it really illuminated so much about the practice of meditation for me. So it's such a pleasure to be able to speak with you. Thank you. So I wanted to start off with, you know, your the history of your practice and your teaching has been for so long. You really have been at the forefront of um, bringing a lot of these Buddhist practices, meditation practice to the West. So I would love to hear a little bit about your own personal story. What brought you to Buddhism uh, initially and maybe a little bit about just the trajectory of your teaching and your and your personal um, uh, personal path? Sure. Well, I. Uh... I went to college um, in the late 60s. I really, almost as an accident, I took an Asian philosophy course as a sophomore. Mm. Um, I say it was an accident because as far as I can remember looking back, uh, it just like fit my schedule. Right. <laughs> you know, and, uh, and it turned out to be a course in Buddhism and uh, it completely changed my life. It was in that mm. in the context of that course that I heard that there was such a thing as meditation practice that there were actually tools that one could use um, that they didn't necessarily need to be embedded in a belief system of any kind, but there were actual practical tools that one could use uh, to be a happier person, and um, which I really longed for. And uh, I was going to school in Buffalo, New York. I looked around Buffalo. I just didn't see it. And uh, in a practical way, you know, there were no classes, there were no um, workshops. And, and I, uh, took another look at the university and had an independent study program where if you created a project that they liked, you could go anywhere in the world. Wow. Uh, and so I created a project. I wanted to go to India and study meditation and they accepted that. So uh, I left in 1970 and I began my meditation practice in early January of 1971. So 
It's been a long time. It has been a long time. So one of the things that, that you just said that I, I think is sort of an interesting topic is, is you mentioned that, you know, in this class, you, for the first time you encountered meditation as something separate from the tradition. So while you are, you know, very embedded in the tradition, it seems you also go very far to kind of teach these things as, as practices that don't necessarily need to imply a certain religious um, affiliation. So what is your kind of position in that? I mean, is it, do the, does the Buddhist tradition um, help illuminate the practice? Can you do meditation practice without these lineages? Does it take away to not be affiliated with the lineage? So I'd, I'd love to hear your kind of thoughts on that. Well, you know, I started my practice in the context of this intensive 10-day retreat led by S.N. Goenka. And the first night of that retreat, so practically the first words I heard were, the Buddha did not teach Buddhism, the Buddha taught a way of life. Right. And so that's been really a foundational understanding for me all along. So I think absolutely you can do the practices without uh, Buddhism, without any particular belief system at all. Um, the question is really not so much the label of, of Buddhism, but does that way of life have something right. to add to really what is kind of mental training? And I think it does. And it comes out in various ways. Uh, the very classic way of saying that would be what about ethics? You know, that if you think, well, I can just, you know, be really reckless all week and then sit down and, you know, compose myself and try to concentrate my mind on Saturday, it's going to be much harder. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and so the invitation uh, within the tradition is to really look at every element of our lives, to consider it a seamless path, you know, how we speak to our neighbor, how we speak to our children, um, how we allocate resources, everything has to do with our degree of mindfulness. And so our inner work and our outer work really are the same. And uh, you can do it without that understanding. You can certainly meditate without that perspective, but I just think it's harder. So it's like the question is, for once in our lives, so we want to do something the easiest way possible rather than the hardest. Right. So that's interesting what you mentioned, that you brought up ethics, because that's, that's actually something I wanted to talk to you about, because a lot of your writing and your work is really about um, cultivating what we might call, you know, as you mentioned, ethical virtues like kindness, compassion, equanimity. Um, but, you know, I think there, there, are, there are a lot of people who are perhaps new to the practice who have a kind of bad taste in their mouth about ethics. Maybe they associate it with something like, you know, the Ten Commandments that are sort of handed down from on high. And so they don't necessarily see the utility of it or they think it infringes upon their freedom in some way. But what I hear you mentioning is something quite different in that it's um, serving a certain utility. Is that correct? Or what is, what is the kind of different, uh, different way of approaching ethics within this um, way of life that you're speaking of uh, as opposed to kind of the, the sort of top-down ethics that maybe a lot of people are familiar with? Um, I think there are, there are a lot of differences. And, you know, one is seeing it as like an adventure, you know, and uh, we're used to equating freedom with like wildness or recklessness. And what about f freedom being developed through greater kindness or... Mm. You know, so it's it's like a reinterpretation of of many things, and it is like a big adventure. And it also, um, you know, within the teachings, they say if you like break a precept, if you violate some moral um, agreement, then you take it again. You know, it's not like this huge uh, shameful thing. It's it's a training. It's a training in awareness. And 
And another thing that is really different is that it's rooted in compassion for ourselves. Mm. It's like, give yourself a break, you know? Don't lead as complicated a life as you're leading. <laughs> um, you know, be nice to yourself. Recognize that your actions have consequences, that the fact that you've told all those lies and then you have to, like, sit there and think, you know, did I lie enough? Did I lie to the right people? You know, <laughs> it's like a total drag. So it's, you know... Be good to yourself and think about a cleaner way of living. Mm-hmm. So it's really that the that living in an ethical way. It's it's kind of an experiment that is is actually is serving you. It's not necessarily you're not serving a higher power by by being sort of morally pure. Right. You're actually serving the kind of clarity of your own mind. Is that correct? That's right. That's yeah. right. So that's that's all very interesting. So say that I was you know for example. Um, Maybe because I've been this person before, <laughs> and I was a, I was a person who didn't feel inspired to to follow ethics in this way because I feel like there's a, there's a sense in which you know you cannot you are if you already have the desire to live ethically then you will. But what about those of us who and I'm not saying I'm this person anymore, but <laughs> what about those of us who who don't yet desire to kind of follow an ethical path? Like how do you begin to cultivate the desire to live? ethically according to these uh, this way of life well then you know i mean it is it's not just a a more contemporary approach but there are uh, lineages within buddhist teaching as well which say just pay attention all you need to do is really pay attention because if you pay attention enough there's wisdom that grows there's insight that comes and we just see so much more clearly it's like you know, if you are that person that I just described who's told a whole bunch of lies and you're also really paranoid about being found out and you sit down to meditate, that's what you see. Mm. And you see, oh, look at that. There's a residue. I thought I was I was home free. Mm-hmm. No, it was done. Look at that. It stayed with me. Oh, look at that. That came back from like eight years ago. Oh, God. <laughs> like, uh, it, it's up to you. You know, it's up to oneself. And and the power of insight is is very strong because we see how actions do have consequences. I thought that particular action was making me so happy and it was so fantastic and woo, maybe not after all. Or mm-hmm. I thought that was so restrictive and um, too humble and uh, you know. But look at that—that that act of generosity really did bring me lingering joy. And so then we know. Mm-hmm. So then the, the practice of, a, of attention, like you're mentioning, starting with attention, uh, when we turn inward and we, and, we, and we start to pay attention to what's, what it's arising, it's not necessarily a walk in the park, right? I mean, this is sometimes mm-hmm. confronting things that are going to take us um, into a place, maybe a, a place of darkness for a while as we really start to, to face ourselves. And, and, and one thing that I definitely notice is that there's, there's a, there's a tendency towards the quick fix prescription in our culture. So we don't necessarily want to move through the shit, do we? We, we, we sort of want to be happier immediately. So what would you say to somebody like that, who's perhaps starting, um, to be attentive for the first time, but it's really making them depressed in a certain kind of way? Mm-hmm. Um, well, there's a lot to say in that. Right. <laughs> uh, one is there's a difference between something coming up and being lost in it, and that's the whole training. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a skill to being able to kind of surf the uh, feelings and memories and, and whatever that come in a way that you're connected but also not drowning, you know? Right. Can, and, you, offer, can you offer, like, three different ways that someone might do that, might surf those waves without getting lost at sea 
Yeah, well, one would be, you know, let's say it's a strong emotion coming up. Uh, try to feel it in your body, you know, mm-hmm. so you have a way of paying attention to it. Um, uh, a really major aspect of mindfulness training is um, look for the add-ons. You know, something is happening right now, but maybe we have the tendency to add on an indefinite future. This is going to be here forever or a tremendous sense of isolation. I'm the only one who's ever felt this or, Mm. you know, so we look for what we may be adding on just through force of habit and see if we can let go or relinquish the add-ons. And then another is always be kind to yourself. You know, these are not bad states or terrible states or awful states. They're painful states. Yeah. And it's not the only reality. It's not the only thing you ever feel, but it's happening right now. And so uh, be kind to yourself in, in doing that. And so then, you know, whatever may be arising, and it's okay. And I, it's definitely normal. I mean, that's an important thing to understand. It's not that you've gone off the rails or your meditation is miserable or you're, you know, a horrible person. This is inevitable because we see everything. We see these glorious, beautiful moments that, you know, come up that maybe we're usually too distracted to even appreciate, and we see uh, these really painful things that are parts of our experience genuinely so. That happens too. It's all okay. Hmm. Hmm. Well, that's really that's really helpful. So you know, now I wanted to shift gears a little bit, and I, I was reading one of your columns in um, in on on being one of your lovely columns. I've been reading them quite a bit frequently or recently, and uh, in one of them, you you talk about um, faith and doubt, and faith is always it's always sort of a hot topic because it seems like you know you get a very mixed response. A lot of people. Um, encounter that word with a lot of Judeo-Christian baggage. Maybe they, you know, associate faith with kind of blind faith and mm-hmm. and uh, and being, you know, socialized not to question or to um, or to be skeptical. And and, and so and so I, I'm wondering what the status of faith is in this way of life that we're talking about, and how it differs from this kind of blind faith that a lot of people might be familiar with. Mm-hmm. I actually wrote a book on faith. Yes. Because uh, it was so fascinating to me. Um, in, within the Buddhist tradition, faith is not really like a commodity, you know, that you either have it or you don't, or you have the wrong kind and you're going to be condemned. It's much more a journey. Mm-hmm. And interestingly enough, a big and rightful part of that journey is doubting. It's questioning. Um, it needs to be the right kind of doubting, you know, so... Uh, they say that faith begins at this stage, which they call bright faith, which is like a stage of intoxication. It's likened to um, being in a enclosed, dark, cramped room, and then something happens, so the door swings open, mm-hmm. and you think, whoa, it's a bigger world. So maybe that's because you meet somebody, or it can happen through art, it can happen through music, it can happen through inspiration of some kind. It's just this moment of like, wow. And it's also likened to falling in love. So it's a beautiful and important state where we understand there's so many possibilities in life. It's so much bigger and greater. And yet it's also a kind of vulnerable state. It's just the beginning because, first of all, we can be kind of gullible. It's like you might meet one teacher one day and think, oh, I'm going to follow them. And then you meet another teacher another day and you think, Oh, forget that other guy. I'm going to follow this one. And, mm. you know, and because it's not centered in oneself, it's really seemingly dependent on something external. And because of that, 
uh, the biggest danger is that we can become afraid to question because any questioning seems to threaten our proximity to what seems to be the source of this glorious feeling. And so the next stage of faith is actually questioning, putting it into practice, verify for yourself, center that that sensibility, that uh, vision within yourself, not someone else. And um, it's always good to ask questions. And the, the major kind of aspect of that is put it into practice, test it out. Uh, don't believe anything just because someone said it. And, you know, that's that's really an onward-leading kind of doubt. The kind of doubt that isn't so onward-leading is is just sort of being cynical, like, I don't think it's worth it. or right, you right. Know, It's almost refusing to question in some funny way. Mm-hmm. It's refusing to engage and, and make the experiment in something. So standing on the sidelines and just wondering is not that helpful. Mm. Now that's interesting. I would I'd love to go a little further with that sort of cynical um, observation that you made because it seems like those who are not you know taken up by a, a spiritual practice there's there's kind of you know a general kind of cultural um, inclination towards deep cynicism, which seems seems to kind of hinge on a on a crude idea of like you know what is scientifically verifiable and all this stuff. So what what is your kind of um, estimation of that culturally and and how can uh the deeply cynical person be taken up by these practices is it just does it go back to what we were mentioning before where it's just about you know just be attentive and that will start to shift as well or is there something else there yeah i mean the you know this the kind of uncertainty and all of that is good you know Mm -hmm. i mean you know we shouldn't be gullible but um you know if it sometimes cynicism is really hardened and, and we are just standing on the sidelines. Um, it's a little bit like a child saying, I didn't want that anyway. When they find that they're not going to get it, you know? Right. So it's also a, a mask for fear and self denigration, all kinds of things. But, you know, if it's strongly in place, very possibly somebody won't practice. But if there's more kind of, suspicion rather than the rigidity, you know, and uncertainty, then the proof is in the experience. You know, you don't have to belong to anything. You don't have to join anything. You make the experiment, take Mm -hmm. a few risks and make the experiment. And uh, if you decide it's complete garbage, then that's what you decide, you know, but, um, you know, the self, the monitoring is oneself. Like, you know, what is my experience? And not like a, perpetual continual evaluation because then you're never really doing the thing you're just evaluating it yeah you know but structure is usually the answer to that kind of doubt like can you commit to practicing every day for a month as one example does that seem reasonable to you and at the end of the month definitely evaluate and assess whether you want to go on and continue Mm -hmm. or not but another aspect to that which is a little tricky is that um, the changes you see or you might see at the end of the month or the benefits you won't see in the, most likely in the 10 or 15 or 20 minutes a day when you're formally practicing, you'll see it in your life. You'll see it uh, the way you speak to yourself when you make a mistake. You'll see it when you meet a stranger. You'll see it um, in a time of adversity, uh, which is where it counts. You know, that's where we want to see it. Right, right. Uh, but you have to think to look there. Mm-hmm. 
So that's that's interesting that you mentioned um, the kind of practicing for a month um, suggestion because that's actually uh, what you advise or prescribe in your book Real Happiness, which mm-hmm. is uh, is an, one of your older books at this point, but but has been very popular. Um, so I'd love to talk about that a little bit. Why why twenty eight days and 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 also you know what is real happiness and how does that differ from maybe unreal happiness or fake <laughs> happiness. <laughs> I think the publisher, honestly, in all honesty, suggested 28 days. Oh, really? Uh, Yeah, it was like four weeks. It seemed a good, you know. And I I think it is realistic in terms of what most people can imagine. Yeah, true. Uh, You know, so uh, Real Happiness was also the publisher's um, suggestion. Um, The book originally uh, was going to be called something else, and then... um, I got an advanced copy of a friend's book with that very title on it. So. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, so it was like, uh, and at first with real happiness, I was, I was kind of uncertain. Like, on the one hand, I thought, in life, that's actually what we want. We want something uh, sustainable, you know, something that will be there for, some quality within that will support us even as life goes through its inevitable changes. Um mm-hmm. So that's what I mean by real happiness is is something that is more durable or mm-hmm. or um, accessible uh, no matter what's happening. And ha- by happiness, I don't mean pleasure, but uh, that sense of inner resource. You know, right. there's something happening inside that can support us. And so I went through, it felt like endless periods on that book tour trying to explain, you know, mm-hmm. what I meant by real happiness, that it wasn't the conventional sense of happiness, perhaps. I see. So, so, um, then for, cause what I, from what I understand of, you know, Buddhist philosophy, which differs from perhaps, um, some, uh, some texts within yoga philosophy is that that happiness is, is, if I'm correct, is not eternal. Like for example, you know, we're looking to, um, reside in our Atman and in, in, in Vedanta, and we and we are in a state of you know Satchidananda, which is sort of this this perpetual um, you know truth consciousness bliss state, which would be kind of this eternal state of you know something or other. But from what I understand, the Buddhist philosophy differs in that they're not actually they're not proposing a a permanent and eternal happiness. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean certainly not in the conventional sense. I mean, it's beyond, it's said to be beyond words, you know. Mm. So it's hard to describe. Right? Yeah, that's good. That's fair. Okay. <laughs> so then, but then the idea is that, like, even if you're finding real happiness, it, it's not that you're going to feel happy all the time. Not in the sense of pleasure or mirthful or ah. giddy, not at all. But um, if you completely redefine happiness, which actually, come to think of it, seems to be one of the uh, submissions of my books. I wanted to recapture the term faith. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a way, even though it wasn't my original choice, maybe, you know, one goal turned out to be to recapture the word happiness. Yeah. Uh, no, we're not jumping up and down for joy all the time. <laughs> life, life is life, you know, with its ups and downs. But I think we also know the difference. Like if something really challenging happens and you haven't slept and you feel all alone and you're lost, you know, uh, it's so much harder. And if that same challenging thing happens, but you're surrounded by loving friends and you can let their love in Mm. and, you know, you're in some comfortable place and you have time and you're rested, it's a whole other scene, right? The same challenge. And so there's something from 
within that we meet things with that I think doesn't have to disappear right, right. when things are hard. So it's so, so in some sense it's a happiness that can that has been a, a, uh, appropriate in a different kind of where, where, way where it can actually contain within itself or can support both, you know, less than pleasant states yeah, and pleasant yeah. states. Yeah, yeah I yeah. see. Perfect. All right. That's beautiful. So um, now I want to move into um, a few clarifying questions regarding, you know, for those who are perhaps newer to, to your work or just to kind of the, the Buddhist um, way of life or the way of life that mm-hmm. the Buddha taught in general. And one, and one of the things that I, that I always think that I, uh, that always comes up for people is, is kind of the question of, of how Buddhist meditation uh, differs from other forms of meditation. And I know there are different forms of Buddhist meditation, and I'm going to ask a question about that in a second, but just kind of a general, in a, in a general way, how does um, the, a meditation that the Buddha taught or that Buddha, uh, people inspired by the Buddha taught differ from other modes? You know, I'm not totally sure I know how to answer that in a comparative sense because right. I've been doing um, this range of practices all within the Buddhist tradition for 45 years. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I've never actually done anything else. Okay. Okay, that's fair. So what, then let's get into the difference between maybe um, Buddhist forms of meditation. So Vipassana, we hear this a lot. It's become very popular. Um, uh, people do, Lots of people doing 10-day retreats and then more. Um, and, and then Metta meditation. What, what is the difference between these two forms of meditation? Um, uh, Vipassana means insight. Mm-hmm. And um, insight meditation... Uh, the engine for insight meditation of any kind is mindfulness. Mm. There's another word one hears a lot. Yes. So uh, the development of uh, a mindful awareness leading to insight is one whole like section, one whole category of meditations. Of, of the many, many ways of practicing mindfulness, and there are many, one particular school, which was Goenka's, he was my first teacher, mm. um, tends to be the one associated with the term Vipassana, which is the Pali language. It's the language of the original Buddhist texts. Mm-hmm. So when you say uh, Vipassana, I think Goenka, 10-day retreats. If you say insight meditation, I think of my center, the Insight Meditation Society, which um, has a whole variety of different approaches, all uh, within that larger category. I see. And metta means loving kindness. Um, so there are a whole range of practices uh, within, I think, every Buddhist school to develop greater love and compassion and kindness. And um, they're uh, kind of a dedicated period of really strengthening those qualities. I see. So would you think of uh, Vipassana and Metta as, uh, would you approach them sequentially if you were to start um, a, um, a Buddhist-inspired meditation practice? Would you, would you do you know, something like insight first and then Metta, or do they, are they done simultaneously, or does it just depend on the person? How does that usually work? Um, it's, it sort of depends on the person in the historical era. Like yeah. They say in the Buddhist time, because like the Metta that I teach, for example, or we teach here, is a concentration practice, um, which means that the main goal, not, not the main goal if it's metta, but the, the goal of the concentration part of it is um, to steady your attention. 
to gather together all the kind of um, energy and attention that's running to the past and running to the future and gather it together and settle in the moment so that you, you end up weaving a kind of sense of centeredness and, and presence. Uh, it doesn't necessarily uh, work with deepening insight, although of course it could, but um, that's not what it's designed for. You know, you're not necessarily trying to see the changing nature of things and understand that everything's contingent and arising due to causes. And, you know, you're, you're more just gathering that energy. Mm-hmm. And so um, they say in the Buddhist time that he would start people, people would be started with a concentration practice that suited their temperament and usually in a way of balance. So if you were very angry or frightened, they would teach you loving kindness. And if you're full of greed, maybe you'd do a death contemplation and uh, being with the breath is always good. It's said to be good for everybody. Um, and after you had settled your mind enough, they would move you on to uh, an insight meditation process where maybe you're not just paying attention to the breath and bringing your attention back there. But if something comes up that really strongly um, captures your attention, maybe you stay with that sensation. Mm-hmm. Or you stay with that emotion for a while, looking at it, taking an interest in it. Then you come back to the breath. And so um, that's what develops the insight part. So they say first you would do concentration and then you would do mindfulness. These days, uh, most people start with some kind of mindfulness practice and then they learn a loving-kindness practice if they want to go on to that. Um because I teach so much loving kindness, I sort of inadvertently um, created a group of people. Like when I first formally taught loving kindness practice, it was like 1985, something like that. And uh, here at the Insight Meditation Society, and I didn't think to have a prerequisite for the course, like, oh, you have to do some mindfulness first. And so a lot of people showed up who hadn't. Mm-hmm. And so all of a sudden there were people again starting with loving kindness practice. Um, and now sometimes it is simultaneous. People will come to an insight meditation course, but there'll be loving kindness in the afternoon or something like that. But oh, that's mostly it, it can be sequential. So, um, so was there much loving kindness? Was there much meta happening in the West in, in the mid eighties when you started doing it or was it really, um, were you really one of the first to really start to introduce it? Um, within this community, it was the first, as far as I know. Mm. So I, I have actually a question that is sort of I, I've been curious about for a while in that, um, uh, well, I guess the question for you would be, have you encountered many, many people who um, have trauma around the breath, and so it's difficult for them to start with something like insight into the breath or watching their breath? Is that a, is that a, is that a um, common enough issue? Yes, I think it is fairly common. And so uh, some of the basic principles, as I understand them, underlying the choice of the breath mm. um, it are, uh, first of all, as my early teachers would say, uh, it's universal. You don't have to believe anything. You don't have to call yourself a Buddhist or Hindu or reject anything else. If you're breathing, you can be meditating. And then, as one teacher said, um, I always felt very charmingly, he said, the breath is very portable. So if you are uh, taking that 10 minutes, let's say, a day, formally practicing, then you're at work and things are going crazy or you're commuting and you're getting all anxious, you can remember, oh, take a few breaths, mm-hmm. right? So it's right there with you. And then the third reason is that the breath is fairly neutral because we want some object that 
um, is like a place for chilling out. You know, so many wondrous and beautiful things arise in the practice, so many difficult things arise in the practice, and then we have the breath where we can just chill. So what you're saying, which is true, is that for a lot of people, the breath is not neutral. Yeah. And so we just try to find another object that will suit those three. Sometimes it's listening to sound. Sometimes it's something else happening in the body. Um, you know, there are lots of options. Mm. And, does it and does it often happen that by choosing another object, ultimately that um, focus of the insight in turn kind of dissolves the trauma around the breath? Do you find that happening a lot? And, and then that, that they can t- then turn at a later stage to the breath? Uh, that might be. You know, I mean, just, you know, it's just sort of the general evolution of um, being able to let go more easily, you know, feeling more of a refuge within, you know, all that. Mm-hmm. So so now a, a kind of maybe general historical question. We were talking about history a, a little bit um, is, uh, you know, a lot of the practices that you are um, affiliated with are would be called um, Theravada, uh, yeah. if, I, if I'm correct. So and then we have this other tradition. Well, we have a couple, but the other main tradition would be called you know, it's referred to as Mahayana. So yeah. I'm curious what um, maybe some a few thoughts about the, the difference between these two traditions, how we ended up with with two different traditions and maybe <laughs> what their approach is um, in, in terms of this practice or way of life. Well, uh, it's, you know, it's kind of complicated. I mean, the teachings of the Buddha moved um, from India to Southeast Asia to Northern Asia and here. And uh, and each place, it kind of took on a certain sort of flavor and cultural um, overtone and so on. So uh, the word, the Mahayana means greater vehicle. And so... Um, the the term you hear a lot, which we've replaced with Theravada, is Hinayana, which is lower vehicle or lesser vehicle. Oh, so I sound very good. No, we don't <laughs> think of ourselves that way. You know, and some Mahayana teachers and Tibetan teachers will say, "Oh well, it's not meant to be about a whole school. It's meant to be about an attitude." You know, like uh, enlightenment is just for me or something like that. But um, you know, basically, South teachings that were preserved and maintained in Southeast Asia Asia are usually called Theravada. Mm. And the um, teachings more from Northern Asia, you know, Tibet, China, and so on, are more like Mahayana. And so um, how different they are really depends on who you ask. You know, like the um, historical, almost by the book answer, you know, is that uh, people in Southeast Asia... um, are less, not people in, in general in the country, but people in the practice, are, are less committed to compassion for all beings and, and that kind of bodhisattva ideal and are more about becoming free themselves and that the Mahayana places compassion much more in the center. So I've never totally found that um, a workable division. Right, right. You know, because uh, I've known so many different teachers within each, and teachers also seem to have personalities, you know, and they're, they're sort of like the uh, uh, massively loving and, and compassionate people, and they just happen to be Theravadan, and, you know, they will talk about um, 
taking care of others and helping others. And then within the Mahayana, you know, maybe they're the very ascetic hermit type right. people. And they will always talk about compassion because it's so embedded in their approach. But when you really look at what they're emphasizing, you think, well, maybe, you know, uh, it's not as central as renunciation or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, yeah. so I, I don't know how to do it in a kind of historical divide. Yeah, well, and, and certainly in your own work, I mean, it's it's very obvious that you, even though you might be affiliated with Theravada practices, you talk a, a lot about, you know, how these practices are helping to to support, um, you know, a sense of expansiveness or connection with other people (laughs) and the world around you. So it's almost as if like, even though it might be, they might be centered on yourself, it's like you're getting out of your own way so that ultimately you can be available because if you're super contracted and, you know, you know, drowning in your own bullshit, then you can't really be compassionate. I agree. Yeah. So why don't we, um, this has been very nice. We've covered so many things in such a, a quick pace. So, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm happy I'm going to be able to fit maybe five minutes of sure. meditation with you in before we have to close. So do you want to take us on a little meditation journey, uh, Sharon? Sure. Um, I'd say, uh, I'm assuming no one's driving and listening to this, right? Uh, <laughs> So if you're in a safe place, sit comfortably, and uh, you can either close your eyes or not. Um, Have your attention just settle into your body. Start by just listening to sounds, whatever sounds may appear, my voice or other sounds. It's a way of relaxing deep inside, allowing your experience to come and go. Of course, we like certain sounds and we don't like others, but we don't have to chase after them to hold on or push away. Just let them come, let them go. bring your attention to the feeling of your body sitting, whatever sensations you discover. Bring your attention to your hands and see if you can make the shift from the more conceptual level, like those fingers, to the world of direct sensation. Picking up pulsing, throbbing, pressure, whatever it might be. You don't have to name these things, but feel them. And bring your attention to the feeling of your breath. This is just a normal, natural breath. You don't have to try to make it deeper or different. See if you can find the place where the breath is clearest for you or strongest for you. This might be the nostrils or the chest or the abdomen. You can find that place, bring your attention there, and just rest. See if you can feel one breath. And if for some reason the breath doesn't work for you, Move your attention throughout your body, starting at the top of your head, and slowly scanning down, feeling the different sensations. Mm-hmm. 
whichever your primary object might be, the really important moment comes after your mind has wandered, which usually is pretty quickly. Our minds jump to the past or they jump to the future, to judgment or speculation. If you notice this, see if you can let go gently and bring your attention back to the breath or the sensations. Because this is really the crucial transformation, to let go gently, to begin again without judgment, without feeling like a failure. We let go and we start over. feel ready, you can open your eyes, relax. Well, thank oh, you. Thank that you. was that really was nice. Really nice so um, how can people um, experience more of that with you? Do you want to tell us a little bit about what's um, maybe some retreats or some things that are happening that you're involved in coming up and maybe uh, websites that people can find out information uh-huh. about your teachings? Uh, my website is SharonSalzberg.com, and uh, hopefully my whole teaching schedule should be on there. <laughs> um, I have, you know, so much coming up on uh, classes uh, in New York City, different um, three-day retreats, things like that. Um, so really the best thing is just to check out the website. Check out the website. Are you, are you regularly leading meditation at Mindful downtown New York? I have one more scheduled, um, okay. and then we'll see. I have I just turned in a manuscript for a book, a new book, so that'll be coming out in May or June. Oh, excellent! Um, yeah, so it's can you a, share the title of that book? Yes, that one is called Real Love. Real Love, nice, excellent. All right, Th- this has been such a nice chat. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you, Sharon. Thank you so much for um, offering your time. Thank you, really. It's been wonderful. All right, I'll speak to you soon. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Sharon Salzberg. I certainly enjoyed chatting with her and gaining all of the practical insights that she had to share. So if you'd like to hear more about Sharon and her teachings, just check out SharonSalzberg.com. And then the Insight Meditation Society, which uh, Sharon founded, is actually dharma.org, D-H-A-R-M-A.org. 